Chris has asked me to speak on the topic of the wisdom of self-control this morning. This is ironic to me because historically, I haven't had any. My story is littered with gluttony and fits of rage, self-medicating on excessive use of entertainment and unrestrained sexual passion. I personally know firsthand the pitfalls of self-indulgence. And by God's grace, I'm learning also the wisdom of self-control. In the 1960s, there was a sociologist named, uh, by the name of Walter Michel who performed an experiment that has now become known as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. If you've ever seen the video on YouTube of little kids sitting in front of a marshmallow having a stare down, trying to decide whether or not they should eat it or hide under the table, you've seen the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. In this experiment, Michelle and his colleagues wanted to discover whether or not there was any prolonged benefit to delayed gratification. So they set up an experiment in which children, elementary school age, would be left in a room with one marshmallow and told that if they could keep themselves from eating that marshmallow over the course of five minutes, the researcher would come back and bring them a second marshmallow when they returned. It is one of the funniest experiments that I've ever seen, and I highly encourage you to go watch some of the videos. You see kids who will hide underneath the table so they don't have to look at the marshmallow. You'll see kids who will put the marshmallow under the table. You'll see kids who will throw the marshmallow in the corner. You'll see kids who are biting their lip, biting their fingers, sitting on their hands, doing anything and everything they can to keep themselves from eating this marshmallow. And then you also see some kids who do not care about a second marshmallow whatsoever. Before the researchers even out of the room, they've snatched that marshmallow up and shoved it in their mouth. They have it swallowed before they've even taken a bite of the thing. Uh, And over the course of several decades, Michelle and his colleagues took the time to follow these young children to see what kind of behavior habits developed over the course of a lifetime. What they discovered was that those children who were able to delay gratification when they were young ended up wealthier, more successful, and typically happier than their marshmallow-eating counterparts. New research has brought the conclusions of that experiment into question, however. In an article titled, Why Rich Kids Are So Good at the Marshmallow Test, a researcher in the Atlantic discovered that it was demographics that played the biggest role in whether or not a child would be able to delay gratification. They discovered that wealthy kids who came from affluent homes often did much better at delaying gratification when they were young, and were much more compelled to continue that behavior as they grew older, therefore becoming wealthier, happier, and more successful. What they discovered was that the students who came from wealthier backgrounds were typically able to delay gratification longer because they had a sense of security about them. They knew that if they didn't get a second marshmallow, it'd be okay because they were going home where they probably had a cupboard filled with marshmallows. The other kids, on the other hand, who came from a more impoverished background, they were much more prone to go ahead and eat that marshmallow as soon as they possibly could because their experience told them there might not be a second marshmallow, and if they delay, there might not even be a first marshmallow. So those were the kids who were doing everything they could to make sure they got their hands on some marshmallow because they doubted whether or not there would ever be two marshmallows to begin with. Now, these new findings do not negate pre-existing ones, but they do provide important context for them. 
those children who had their basic needs most satisfied were the most free to exercise self-control. In fact, this morning, I want to propose that self-control is really the freedom that comes from a soul that is satisfied in the Lord. I want to address what it is to be self-controlled, why self-control matters, and how we can become more self-controlled people. The call to self-control is seen all throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We see it in uh, Titus chapter 2, where Paul says that the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness and to pursue self-controlled, upright lives. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists self-control as one evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in a believer's life. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, Paul mentions self-control as a qualification for elders. And proverb after proverb after proverb emphasizes the need and importance of self-control as an act of wisdom. For the Christian, self-control is a non-negotiable command of Scripture. But the starting place is, what is it? I propose this morning that self-control is the fraternal twin of discipline. Discipline can be thought of as the ability to make oneself do what one ought to do. Self-control, on the other hand, is the ability to keep oneself from doing what one ought not to do. They are like two pedals on a bike. You can be somewhat proficient in one and totally lack in the other and completely cause yourself a wreck. It's when self-control and discipline are both working together that you can move forward in a life of wisdom. Now, I don't have time this morning to expound on both self-control and wisdom. The focus here is simply self-control. But I think as we master self-control, it lends itself naturally to working into a life of discipline as well. Self-control is a bit of a junk drawer term throughout the Bible. It refers to being the ability to restrain any and every impulse. But the Proverbs specifically offer three examples of self-control most consistently. The first is restraining one's emotions, most notably anger. The second is restraining one's appetites, most notably lust and gluttony. And the third is restraining one's will, most notably impulsive decisions. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 11 speaks to our need to restrain our emotions. It says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 5, 8 through 12 speaks to our need to restrain our appetites, predominantly lust. It says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Proverbs chapter 23 verse 1 through 2 also speaks to our need to restrain the appetites. But here it speaks specifically to gluttony. It says, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 3 speaks to our need to restrain the will. And it says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. 
So self-control is the ability to keep oneself from doing what one ought not to do. In other words, self-control is the person who can stare down the marshmallow of temptation and keep herself from eating it no matter how tempted she may be. It, she'll do anything and everything she can to keep herself from giving in to unrestrained impulses. Whether she has to throw the marshmallow or hide the marshmallow, she is going to keep herself self-controlled. Now, knowing what self-control is important, but knowing why we need to be self-controlled is what actually gets us to live lives of self-control. Our culture uh, hates self-control right now. Every magazine article, every movie, every advertisement, every promotion is trying to convince us to indulge our appetites. They're trying to convince us that we deserve it, that we need it, that life is better if we're unrestrained and can pursue our own personal fulfillment to our own ends in our own way. Now, this is really popular and it sounds really appealing at face value, but the Bible tells us a a different story. We see in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, where it says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Cities were incredibly important in ancient times because cities were the place where people could live in proximity and density, where they had the best access to goods and services and protection and health and other people who could help them experience essentially the good life. Cities were the place of human flourishing. If you could get to the city, you had better odds of surviving and thriving throughout your life. Walls were also really important to the city in ancient times because in ancient times, uh, nations and rulers were constantly on the move to, to, to conquer other nations and cities. They were always trying to expand their territory, always trying to acquire more resources, always conquering more people and lands. So a city desperately needed walls to protect itself from oncoming armies and to make sure that human flourishing could continue in those cities. A city without walls in ancient times was in serious danger of being conquered and destroyed by oncoming armies. So when the Proverbs tell us that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls, it's telling us that the person who gives himself to self-indulgence is actually giving himself to self-ruin. When I was in high school, I had a high school classmate whose brother fell asleep at the wheel while driving to work one morning. It lost control of his vehicle and smashed right into the back of an 18-wheeler truck uh, carrying 25-foot conduit piping. His parents had to identify his body by his driver's license. Now, it's a a bit extreme, and it doesn't actually speak to self-indulgence, but it does prove the point that when we lose control, it is absolutely disastrous for us in the end. The person who lacks self-control is giving himself to self-ruin. Self-indulgence is really self-destruction. We see this all the time in our everyday lives. We see this with overeating and how it leads to obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and so many other health complications and even death. We see this with alcoholism, how alcoholism causes us to lose our temper and oftentimes uh, destroys our family and our relationships. How it can cause heart, uh, heart disease and kidney disease and liver disease. How it totally destroys our mind and our body. We see this in excessive spending 
How spending our money without any sense of restraint can lead to financial ruin, marital hardship, and all kinds of dysfunction. Now, but the lack of self-control doesn't just speak to our physical life. It also speaks to our spiritual and emotional life. Yeah, when we give ourselves to self-indulgence, there's a real possibility that we could ruin ourselves physically, financially, or relationally. But giving ourselves to self-indulgence also ruins our internal world as well. It can ruin our peace of mind. It can ruin our sense of security. It can ruin our sense of satisfaction. It is absolutely disastrous to give ourselves to self-indulgence. Think about this with me in your own life for a moment. Where are you most prone to self-indulgence? And what effect is that having on you, whether internally or externally? Are you a person who is more prone to indulge in the appetites, more prone to indulge in the will, or maybe more prone to indulge in emotions? Are you a person who's more prone to indulge externally with things like money and food and sex and drugs and spending? Are you a person who's more prone to indulge the secret thoughts of your heart and your mind that no one else really knows about but that are actually poisoning you from the inside out? Examine your life for a quick moment. Where are you in danger of self-ruin because you're giving yourself to self-indulgence? It's not something that we like to think about, but it's something that's so incredibly important because if we don't think about where we're on our way to self-indulgence, we'll find ourselves at self-ruin and wonder how we got there. It's taking a moment to reflect on what's going on in our heart, our minds, and our life and examining where we're being self-indulgent and where we could use some self-control that we really are able to begin to prevent the disaster that self-indulgent brings with us. Now, again, like knowing what self-control is, knowing why we need self-control is important, but we actually have to be able to grow in self-control or this knowledge is absolutely worthless to us. So the question becomes, how do we become more self-controlled people? I think there are two particular ways that we can do this. One is through exercise, and one is through grace. Now when I say exercise, I don't mean exercise like physically exercising, going to the gym and getting on the treadmill. I mean the mental and emotional exercise of learning to restrain our impulses and our appetites. Uh, And when I say grace, I mean that we just need help from God. Because we are unable to become self-controlled people on our own. If we attempt to do so, we either become self-despairing or self-righteous. The need to exercise self-control speaks to our need for impulse control. There comes a time where we actually have to recognize when are we prone to self-indulgence and what can we physically do to prevent ourselves from giving in to self-indulgence. Does it mean... Going to the other room, does it mean not buying certain food? Does it not mean not being around certain people? Does it mean recognizing certain times of the day when you're more prone to have your guard down and to give in to the things you know you should not? But grace speaks to our need for transformation. We don't need to simply conform our outward behavior. We need God to actually transform our heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27 speaks to our need to exercise self-control. It says, 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul here is speaking to our need to exercise self-control. He's emphasizing the point that there are are things that we need to do in our heart and in our life to actually restrain the appetites within us. There is going to need to be a need for impulse control, and it is going to require some effort on your part. At the same time, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Here Paul emphasizes the fact that we need God's help to actually change in order to become people who are self-controlled. Our need for self-control does not merely consist of outward behavioral conformity, but is primarily a matter of internal personal transformation. A lack of self-control at its core is fundamentally an attempt to gratify a deep longing for something other than God. It is an illegitimate attempt to meet a legitimate need. Self-indulgence is feasting on dessert and hoping that you'll be satisfied. Self-control is feasting on the Lord knowing that you can live from a place of satisfaction in him. It's feasting on the meal of Christ. Let me give you an example of this from my own life to help flesh this out for you in a way that I think will make it a little bit more tangible and applicable. For as long as I can remember, I have been a person who has struggled with the sin of gluttony. I don't mean just like overeating every once in a while. I mean like excessive, obsessive, and compulsive eating, nonstop, uh, unrestrained, totally abandoned to food. For ever since I was a child, I couldn't just eat one bowl of cereal. I had to eat six bowls of cereal. I couldn't eat just one brownie. I had to eat a whole tray of brownie. I couldn't have just one piece of pizza. I had to eat the whole box of pizza. Uh, this, when I was young, didn't really seem to matter to me one way or another. I could indulge myself and not really feel the effects of it. But by the time I got into college, it was really beginning to take a toll on my body and my mind. Uh, I found myself eating to the point where I was sick, sometimes to the point where I actually wanted to throw up. But no matter what I did, I could not seem to keep myself from uh, indulging in every Uh, food opportunity that I had. Uh, I could not seem to control my impulses to any degree whatsoever. It got to the point where I began to realize that I was using food to pursue pleasure and comfort. When I was having a really good day on the athletic field or in the classroom or in my relationships, I would come home and I would celebrate by eating as much food as I possibly could. And when I'd feel bad about what happened on the athletic field in the classroom or in my relationships, I would come home and I would eat as much food as I could to comfort myself about a bad day. The problem with that way of living was that the pleasure and the comfort I got from food was temporary. It gratified my longings, but it did not satisfy my longings. 
And so what would happen is I'd come home and I'd want to celebrate what was going on in my day by eating food. But in order to maintain that sense of pleasure, I had to eat more food. That was self-defeating because I'd eat a plate and eat a plate and eat a plate. And it would, I'd need more pleasure and need more pleasure and need more pleasure until I got to the point where I felt absolutely disgusted with myself. And at that point, the pleasure I was longing for was still out of reach. It offered me pleasure, but only gave me displeasure. The opposite was true as well. I'd often come home and I'd have a bad day, so I'd give myself to eating food. But the problem with that was, in order to continue to feel comfortable after a bad day, I had to eat more food. So I'd eat more food to feel more comfortable, but the more food I ate, the more uncomfortable I became because the food was just absolutely making me sick. And at the end of the day, I'd shove myself full of so much food that I wanted to throw up and, and die. And my longing for pleasure and my longing for comfort were still unsatisfied. I was ruining myself for something that could not even fulfill the most basic desires of my heart. Then I was, I was like the movie character who said, I eat because I'm unhappy. And I'm unhappy because I eat. It was a self-defeating cycle that went on for years. I could hide it because I was a college football player and I spent four hours a day working out, burning more calories than the average human does in a year. But it was destroying me from the inside out. Then there came a time when I began to realize that my inability to control myself really came from a deep longing for something that this world could not fulfill. I began to realize that I really did long for pleasure and I really did long for comfort. And those were God-given needs and desires. But they were God-given needs and desires that he designed me to have satisfied in him. I began to realize that the comfort that I was trying to get from food, I already had available to me in Jesus Christ. Jesus was made uncomfortable on the cross for my sin so that I could be forever comforted in God because of his sacrifice. And when I looked to Jesus, I had uh, an unending well of, uh, of comfort. And the same was also true with pleasure. When I began to, to realize that God had designed me to live my life with and for him, and that I was going to be happiest when he was in my life and I was living according to the way he wanted me to, I began to see that Jesus had come to set me free from the lie that sin could be for me, something that only God could be for me. And the more I, I realized that Jesus died for sins so I could be made right with God, and through Jesus I had a re- relationship with God that was unhindered and unconditional, I was able to begin to satisfy my need for pleasure in the Lord, knowing that he was the one who fulfilled that very desire. And the more I began to seek comfort and pleasure in the Lord, the more that comfort and pleasure was lasting and truly fulfilling. And the more that I experienced the lasting pleasure and comfort of God, the more I was free to exercise self-control with food. Now, there's a part of me that needed to exercise impulse control, and I tried and failed miserably. But there was a part of me that really needed the grace of God to change me. And as the grace of God has made its way further and further into my heart and life, the more life change I've experienced and the more I've been free from self-indulgence and free to give myself to self-control. You see, self-indulgence is not only self-destruction, it's also slavery. The person who has to indulge his every appetite is a person who is a slave 
to his appetites. If I have to indulge my appetite for food, I am a slave for food. If I have to indulge my appetite for sex, I am a slave to sex. If I have to indulge my every appetite for chocolate or spending or shopping or affirmation and applaud and approval, then I am a slave to the very thing that I desire. And it's only in Christ that we can be set free. The satisfied soul has no need for self-indulgence. It is free to restrain itself because it does not need from created things that which it has in its creator. Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. He's writing to the church at Rome and he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul here is saying that when we sin, particularly when we sin when it comes to self-indulgence, what has ultimately happened is that we have exchanged the soul-satisfying grace of God for a lie that some created thing can stand in his place as a better substitute. The problem is that gives us over to sin and sin leads to self-indulgence and self-indulgence leads to self-destruction. In fact, if you read the rest of that passage in Romans, it says that God in his wrath, in his anger, chooses to judge people who give themselves to self-indulgence by giving them over to self-indulgence. The rest of that chapter is a long list of all the ways that people destroy themselves by indulging themselves. So it says, when we try to substitute something other than God, it fails to satisfy, and we have to give ourselves to it with self-indulgence. And God says, if we don't turn, he just gives it up to it. And it ultimately ruins us. This is that what God does then, if we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and chosen something else to be a poor substitute, God has chosen to exchange Jesus for us as a better substitute. We sinned, trading God for something. God traded Jesus for us to forgive our sin and to free us from it. That in Jesus, we'd be set free from our sin so we could freely worship God and have our souls satisfied in him. And it's when our soul is satisfied in God through Jesus that we are completely and totally free from all the things that would enslave us in this world. We are completely and totally free to exercise self-control. See, this is how God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and to pursue self-control. It helps us see that all the things that we're indulging in are really just temporary ways to gratify the deep longings of our souls. And the grace of God teaches us that Jesus is the one that God has given to truly satisfy our souls. Now, this can play itself out in so many different ways in our lives. There's so many different reasons why we might give ourselves to self-indulgence. One person might indulge in shopping as a means to comfort herself. Another person might indulge in shopping as a way to make himself feel significant and important. They might be indulging in the same thing, but they might be indulging in the same thing for two very different reasons. One person might be on social media using that as a way to try and make themselves feel pleasured when they're bored. 
Another person might be on social media simply because they're indulging in a need for other people's approvals and likes and favorites and tweets and retweets. But underlying all of it is the same need for God to be the one that we look to for our freedom and our satisfaction. And this plays itself out in so many different ways as we have to take the time to begin to really do some reflection, some deep soul work and find out why am I really so self-indulgent on whatever it is I'm so self-indulgent on? And when we've taken the time to identifying the underlying thing that we're replacing for God, then we need to, to understand that God has replaced Jesus for us. And when we begin to make the connection that through Jesus we have pleasure in God, through Jesus we have comfort in God, through Jesus we have approval in God, through Jesus we have significance in God, through Jesus we have whatever it is that we're looking for in God, then God really begins to do the deep work of inner transformation that empowers us to do the personal work of exercising self-control. Some of you, you are totally aware of your self-indulgence. You know exactly how self-indulgence is destroying your life. You can see it in your relationships. You can see it in your finances. You can see it in your health. You can see it in your marriage. You can see it in your inner being, your mind, and, and your soul. I want you to know this morning that you don't have to despair over your self-indulgence. You also don't have to give yourself to it anymore again. In Jesus, you have the freedom that you need to exercise self-control. It requires acknowledging the fact that the thing you're looking for can only be found in him, and any attempt to find it anywhere else is only going to temporarily gratify you. So I invite you this morning to acknowledge your self-indulgence, to come clean about that, and to turn to the Lord Jesus, feasting on him uh, and satisfying your soul in what he's done for you on the cross. Others, however, you've come in here and you're in self-denial. You don't have any glaring issues of self-indulgence in your life. Your family's pretty well put together. Your finances are in order. You eat pretty well. You exercise regularly. There's nothing on the surface that would lead anyone to believe that you have a problem with self-indulgence. But for you, the issue of self-control lies deeper. It's more deceptive and more hidden. It might be the self-indulgence that's in your thoughts. It might be the self-indulgence that's in your wayward ambitions. It might be the self-indulgence that's in hidden appetites that you secretly gratify through means that you have not told anyone else about. And while you like to believe the lie that you are free because of your self-indulgence, you're actually a slave and you don't even know it. I would encourage you this morning to come clean about your self-indulgence. I would encourage you this morning to take stock of your inner world and come to terms with the fact that there are areas in your life where self-indulgence is actually doing you more harm than good. And I would, I would invite you this morning to do the same as those who know that they're struggling with self-indulgence and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive the grace of God that helps you see clearly that those things are temporary so that you might turn to the eternal hope and satisfaction that's in Jesus Christ. Can I invite you to do that this morning? Can I challenge you to go home and do the hard work of introspection and self-reflection? And can I invite you to take the bold step of trusting Jesus for the things you're trying to get elsewhere? That is the freedom 
of self-control. Before we leave this morning, I want to give you one test to know whether or not you're falling into self-indulgence. And that is simply this. When you enjoy something, you're probably free to enjoy it. But when you begin to need whatever it is you're enjoying, you're probably giving yourself to self-indulgence and you're probably on your way to becoming a slave. I am free to enjoy Chinese food and pizza and ice cream and chocolate and coffee. But the moment I begin giving myself to that because I'm trying to gratify a need, that's the moment I've crossed over to self-indulgence. That's the moment that I'm in danger of becoming a slave. And that's the moment that I take a step towards self-destruction. So I don't want you to hear you have to renounce all human things, that you have to sit as a hermit in your house with the lights off and the TV off and the music off and keep to yourself for the rest of your life. I want you to be free to enjoy the things that God has given you without becoming a slave to those things. I want you to be free to exercise self-control without becoming a slave to self-indulgence. And I think that's one test that helps us get there. Are you enjoying it because you enjoy it? Or are you giving yourself to it because you feel like you actually need it to gratify something much deeper in your heart? If you can answer that question, you're free to enjoy. But you're also free to recognize when it's time to turn to the Lord Jesus and to live in his liberating power. So as we get ready to leave this morning, recognize this. You are going to have to put forth some effort to exercise self-control. You're going to have to learn when you're prone to give yourself self-indulgence, and you're going to have to develop the muscles of self-restraint. That is part of becoming a self-controlled person. But you're also going to need the grace of God to help you when you cannot help yourself. The way to become a self-controlled person is to satisfy yourself in the Lord Jesus. Because the soul that is satisfied in Jesus is free to exercise self-control.